0: this is iaq radio indoor air quality radio the voice of the indoor air quality industry with your host radio joe hughes and the z-man cliff zlotnick and now radio joe hughes
1: good day and welcome to iaq radio plus episode 685 this week we welcome robert higgins william thornton and Roland VR. We're going to talk to the moisture mob about the uh, concrete. This is our concrete panel, grand finale, part one. Next week, we will have the uh, rest of the moisture mob on, and we'll talk about other types of surfaces, but today we focus on concrete. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. They're the reason we can continue doing the show, and don't forget, after the show on afterthoughts forward com. sponsored by FIRST On our marquee sponsor is First On Site at FirstOnSite.com. Our association sponsors are the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists, ACGIH.org, the American Industrial Hygiene Association, AIHA.org, the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification, IICRC.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories. AEMLINC.com Particles Plus Particles Plus.com TSI Inc. TSI.com Sunbelt Rentals SunbeltRentals.com. Healthy Indoors Magazine Healthy Indoors.com
0: and now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to C Zlotnik at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. I'm sorry to report that no one correctly identified the label on a chianti waden bottle as the surface upon which the scientists who attended the first self-sustaining nuclear reactor signed their Names. The IAQ radio trivia question for today, January 6, 2023, has been sponsored by TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring of indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations at TSI.com. Here's today's IAQ radio trivia question. In the movie Godfather 2, young Vito Andolini is transported to New York City on a ship named Mishulu. Name the other two movies in which the same ship
1: appears. Back to you, Joe. All right. Robert Higgins has been involved with moisture-related issues in concrete and waterproofing since 1976 and has been developing products for such use since 1980. He was a product development chemist for Synac. He continues to work on various committees and provides expert witness services on topics related to construction, concrete, and coatings. William
0: Thornton is North American Technical Director for Target Sports and a leading floor covering expert. William has four decades of experience in all aspects of the flooring
1: industry. And Roland Vieira is the President and CEO of Flooring Forensics, Inc. Flooring Forensics is an independent consulting firm specializing in the science and forensic evaluation of floor covering performance failures. Mr. Vieira has been a third-party claims consultant for more than thirty-five years. Welcome back, gentlemen, for the grand finale, part one here, at Moisture Mob. Great to have you all back. Hey, what, what we wanted to do is start with a kind of a recap of your earlier shows, just kind of the, the key points. Let's start with Robert. Welcome back, Robert. Uh, Bob Higgins, always great to have you, the concrete chemistry guy. Uh, let's let's go over a couple of key points from your first show.
2: Oh. Probably the most important thing is that concrete has changed immensely over the years. And the first dramatic change was in the 1950s when they started going to a finer grind. And uh, what they did is uh, going to a finer grind, they could use less cement and get the same amount of compressive value. But what they didn't understand was that this also made the concrete more permeable. It was 500% more permeable then compare, for example, concrete placed at 30 days or 28 days, whatever you want to call it, 3,000 psi in the 1980s, compared to uh, concrete placed in the 1950s at 3,000 psi, 28 days. The uh, the the newer concrete is 500 percent more permeable, had much greater capillarity, and now. Um, Chained on to that, we've noted there are some other dramatic changes that have occurred and they're not being conveyed adequately, adequately if at all, to the foreign industry or just about anybody else. Where the, where, uh, the EPA, over the course of the years between 2002 and 2019, required that what's called cement kiln dust was reincorporated back into the cement production process to lower the emissions uh, uh to make it more green however these materials this conc- the cement kiln dust is much more alkaline than normal cement and it adds an alkalinity to the cement that makes it behave differently and each area of the country has its own characteristics so there's no equalization or equal value that you can assign from one cement plant to the next and uh and then added on this last uh, about two years, <clears throat> uh, they have a new type of cement that they're promoting for concrete floors and, and uh, much of the other concrete construction. It's called Type One L cement. They use Type One cement, and a lot of and it gets by people uh, that's Type One L cement. The Type One L cement is where they've replaced some of the Portland cement with with it with uh, very fine limestone. Now, the, this is a challenge because the uh, limestone is much finer than cement. And what the, the, the downside of that is it absorbs a lot of water. The Bob, the, why do, the,
3: uh, Bob, why do the, they do that?
2: They're doing that to try to uh, lower the carbon footprint. And that's what the attempt is. It's, it's really, it's premature. There's not enough data on it. And... Uh, and the concrete I've seen that where they're placing with this, there's getting a lot of micro-checking, a lot of curling. And uh, and most of the damage is occurring in the top one inch of the concrete. And that's been uh, noted in global studies. It's not just the United States, but in global studies. VTT, for example, uh, produced a, a, a report that I, I read where it shows that the alkalinity, in my view, is the alkalinity, but they they couldn't, Figure out why the cement, the concrete surface on uh, the cement was self-desiccating. Two to three weeks after placement, the relative humidity in the top one inch of the concrete was dropping below eighty percent, and sometimes as low as fifteen sixty percent. What this does, it, it this permanently damages the cement formation. You don't, you can't get as much cement, and you've established pores and porosity and permeability. That is is that is disproportionate to the remainder of the concrete, and unfortunately, with the current tests that we have, we're treating the concrete as a homogeneous substance, which it is not. The damage is beginning and ending with the surface of the concrete, so that's what's really progressed since the last talk I gave with IAQ. Yeah,
1: that was Bob, two years ago. Exactly. Go ahead. Yeah. Somebody had a question.
3: Yeah, Bob. Uh, uh, do you think this has, um, the changes in the concrete that we have today, do you think it has anything to do with uh, the USGBC's initiative with LEED uh, version 4, um, which is the most recent change, um, with, all, with the green initiatives, as, as you mentioned? Um, certainly that has something to do with it. You wouldn't agree, would you agree?
2: probably um not knowing the details of that you yeah, know there's this rush to uh for everybody to be green and they're doing so very in a very haphazard way and uh that i i completely disagree with there needs to be more study done on it and uh and but it's not being done and what's what's most bothersome to me and this is uh this is legacy involved cuz uh Basically, this chemistry of the cement has been ignored. Uh, a good example is where phenolphthalein indicator tests has been used by these engineers for for roadways and uh, bridge decks and, and uh, concrete uh, parking decks and everything else you can think of. And if it turns bright red or purple, that means the concrete's safe and it hasn't been carbonated. And uh, if it stays clear, it's carbonated. Well, that's... It's staying clear, yes, it's carbonated, but it can be carbonated even if it changes color. Because what they did is they ignored the sodium hydroxide, because if sodium hydroxide carbonates, it's it's still very, very alkaline, and it's right in the sweet spot of phenolphthalein. So they're getting these false positives, and they're delaying needed repairs for some of these structures, and all of a sudden we have these catastrophes and disasters that... They were led in this false sense of security by the color, uh, the color change of renal failing. That's just one of the tests. I I could take up the whole hour giving examples of different types of tests that are actually more misleading than helpful, and these need to be changed. Well, we're going to go into that a
1: little more in a little more detail later in the show, but uh, let's go to William Thornton now. William, let's give us a quick overview of your first show.
3: Uh, From the first show, we were actually talking about the interconnectivities between uh, floor covering and the surface of concrete. Uh, Not the design and and construction of concrete itself, but how the surface is connected to floor covering that you put on top of it. Um, This is something that we should do a show on later. Um, The interconnectivities uh, between floor covering and concrete, um, adhesive design and construction of just glues itself what one glue means versus another glue. Uh, But that was the overview that we had uh, on the last time. I I think certainly we can take that uh, uh, considerably further getting into um, uh, floor patches, um, the ASTM F710, uh, which is a really good one. Uh, That's the preparation of concrete slabs to receive resilient floor covering. Uh, that's a really interesting document that that could be reviewed um, but then also floor patches you know things that think uh, the the emerging changes that are happening with floor patches and self levelers today uh, they certainly have changed um, how they connect to concrete how our resilient flooring connects to concrete and, and the adhesive the, the 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 bond right that's we call it the bond line uh, which is the most important thing that 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 contractors should consider?
1: I want to kind of ask you a question, William, that sort of bridges the gap between you know the old concrete, which is where I see this happen most often, because I'm, what I'm, what I'm referring to is, and I think you talked a little bit about this in the first show, was for many years now, and even today, asbestos abatement companies go in and they remove asbestos floor tile. And then yes. they use various techniques to remove the mastic, uh, the cutback yes. adhesive. Yes. One of those being a scarf bar where they actually kind of chip the flooring up. I'm wondering, is there a way that's preferable when you're putting in a new floor or are there certain requirements? I mean, do you run into problems when that's removed improperly?
3: Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I could probably spend a whole episode on uh, asbestos abatement, Joe um yeah. the the way that it's done today um, um, um typically they'll tear up the floor right, right. And then they'll use a they'll use a, a low flash solvent that means that the solvent that they use will stay liquid for a long time uh mineral spirits for for example is would takes a while to evaporate where acetone takes no time at all to evaporate Um, so they'll use a long-term liquid resident solvent and there's a bunch of them out there. And I don't want to give the names of those, uh, Mm -hmm. not here. Um, but that, that is, um, the, the old adhesive was called cutback, right? Yep. Uh, there's a specific name for that one that everybody and their cousin has used, but I can't name that either, but everybody knows it that knows it. Mm -hmm. Um, but that, but that was a cutback. That was an asphalt emulsion adhesive. Right, it's an asphalt. Basically, it's like roofing tar. So, taking that off, you, it really—it's re- not water soluble. So you have to use a solvent to tear it up. So you set the solvent on top of the cutback. You let it sit there for twenty minutes, thirty minutes, or whatever. Twenty minutes probably, or whatever. How long, How long? And that will—that will emulsify the cutback adhesive. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then they'll scrape all of that up. Once it's emulsified, they'll scrape all that up and uh, they'll throw shop rags um, or other absorbent material into that pile of gook that they got. And then they'll throw it into uh, hazmat bags and that's how they chuck it out the door. The problem is, and um, I certainly can talk further about this one, um, and I got pictures to prove it. Uh, the problem is, is that what we've identified with that, with, with any of those solvents um, we've even done this up to the ASTM level uh, that these solvents can reach down at least to, at least an inch to two inches into the concrete wow. by sitting there. So what goes down comes up Uh I've seen and, and the other thing that they don't do is they don't recognize how to treat joints and cracks. So this liquid that gets down into the concrete at the joints and cracks, that doesn't get removed, because the, the end process from the abatement company, all they do is they'll come in with, with a mop and a bucket, pretty much, and they'll clean the top of the concrete with don dishwashing liquid or other neutral detergent. Right. that's all they do what what happened to the rest of that solvent that has penetrated down into the bottom down into the middle of the concrete or into the control or into control joints or or expansion joints or even uh, uh below surface cracks of concrete that gets down into there um as soon as you uh the the big mistake that is made is that um contractors will think that they can go in there with with regular floor patch uh any of the the pre uh, any of the premium floor patches that are on the market today they'll flat trowel uh, flat trowel the top of that right and they really? think they think that floor patch is a sealer nah. it is not in in fact it's it's very porous i mean it, it it's concrete basically Um, so what happens is as soon as you as soon as you encapsulate the top of the floor with a resilient floor covering or any other floor covering for that matter, those solvents that are still in there, and we've proven that 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 it is down there, um, it will come back up. And these solvents are meant to do one to meant they have a purpose. What are they intended to do? They're intended to remove to emulsify adhesive. That's their intent, right? So when these solvents start to come back up into the top of the floor, and then they reach that bond line, the bond line, as I mentioned earlier, is the, the interface between the, the surface of the concrete and the floor covering above it. So you have adhesive and floor patch or anything else but in, in between. Those solvents will will, will rise. Uh, they, it's an absolute certainty that they will rise. Their intent is to destroy, uh, adhesive uh which when they come back up they will certainly uh engage uh the adhesive that you just applied and certainly destroy that
1: and you also get an odor i'm sorry you can also get an odor from that that is uh very problematic for whomever the building owner is when you're done
3: Um, it depends on which one you're using. Um, you've got, um, there, there are certain, uh, solvents out there. Uh, there's a number of them that are actually, um, citrus based. Yes. And the, the citrus based, uh, I don't want to name the name, sir. Uh, but the citrus based ones, they have a chemical called deliminin that is, um, made in Bob's state. Thanks, Bob. (laughs) Uh, where they, they actually, they get this, they get this, uh, out of orange rinds. So they heat it and compress it and blah, blah, blah. And they pull out this solvent. Um, so if you smell something that smells like, if, if you smell something that smells like oranges, that is very likely dileminant. And that is an, an, incredibly, incredibly aggressive solvent. Um, but even more so it's incredibly aggressive to vinyl, mm-hmm. to PVC. Okay. Exceptionally, exceptionally aggressive to PVC.
1: So be careful. And it, and it does mm-hmm.
3: migrate. It it will migrate. It'll migrate through glue. Um, it'll migrate through floor patch. Um, it'll migrate. Um, uh, this stuff will migrate uh, as far as it can go. I, I've seen uh, systems that were abated like this where they, you know, they did a self-leveler on top of the floor with a primer and a self-leveler. And then vinyl installed right on top of it with an acrylic adhesive. It takes time. I mean, it's a slow moving migration, but it, it, you know, I can't tell you how long, maybe a year and a half, two and a half years. But uh, at the end of the day, that will migrate right up through the floor. And not only could it um, compromise the adhesive, but it will turn the vinyl brown.
1: Interesting. And that's, Uh, you know, it goes back to the green thing. People thought because it's, made from orange peels and and, you know that it's a green product and it's easy to use
3: but it's but it's exceptionally dangerous it's very dangerous it's a very dangerous product to use
1: and it's something that if you're you're working in a building and you it's an older building you you may want to consider has that asbestos been abated and how was it abated but uh all right let's go to Roland Vieira. Cliff. I I have
0: a follow-up actually um I I want to go off on a tangent and then kind of come back to this. One of the things that restoration companies uh, encountered, uh, it's more geographically driven, is fuel oil spills uh, in in basements. So what happens is we end up getting large amounts of fuel oil, it gets on the concrete, uh, it soaks in, and, and so on and so forth. And from personal experience, the only way I was ever able to kind of resolve these situations was to try to absorb it and then treat the surfaces that were affected with other types of solvents that would penetrate and evaporate at a faster rate and hope that those other types of solvents, as they evaporated at a faster rate, would wick up um, the, the, the fuel oil. And what we would do is we would cover that cement or concrete surface with an absorbent material. It could either be uh, filter powder from... A uh, swimming pool, you know, swimming pool filter powder, which is kind of like diatomaceous earth or else kitty litter and, and and that sort of thing. And I'm wondering, and it would work. Then we were able to coat those floors and, uh, again, resolve these other problems. I'm just wondering if more was done in these situations in terms of using that type of process, whether you th- you or Bob, you know, think it would work or not. And as yeah. far as the limonene goes, one other comment the E is very very reactive with ozone indoors so if you have ozone indoors you know whether it's from a natural source or it's from uh an indoor source very very reactive and it creates uh some problems with indoor air quality because it creates uh fine particles ultra fine particles
3: wow I didn't you know, know that. Cliff, you, cliff you make a value that is really interesting that you bring that up because the. Um, it's not just dimethyamine that we're that we're that we're dealing with, but it's the other solvents too. And so um, there's a number of projects that I've been on where um, you're right. If you you're right, Cliff. If you take um, if you take some if you take a higher flash solvent and you put that on top of the concrete. Um, as the, the, what you're trying to do is you're actually trying to pull that out of there, right? right? Absolutely, yes. Sir. Um, I've seen the same thing happen with floor patch, right? So, uh, it, it, it's the nature of things. So, as like, um, and certainly we, we can talk about this one further, but as floor patch was put into control joints or, or, uh, uh you know, cracks, what I've seen a lot. Of is as the water evaporates out of the concrete, it draws the solvent out. And I've seen that happen in, 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 in as quickly as as a day. Like in one day, you will see all of that brown solvent and cutback shoot right out to the top of the concrete. So I think I think your idea is right, actually.
1: Excellent. Roland, let me let you
2: jump in here. Give us a quick overview from your last Sure. Well, uh, just just one more. I just do want to add oh, one, one more thing, Ron. Uh, what I have found, it's gonna be it's a simple poultice to help pull that out the rest of the way. Is mm-hmm. if you take just plain Portland cement and mix it 50-50 with with tide detergent, the powder, you put that down as a poultice, it will draw out the rest of that. I found <laughs> it to be very effective.
3: So that, that might be help. a safer way. That might be a safer way to do it. Right? Yes,
0: yes. So Very you're using so dry tide and then well, yeah. uh, diatomaceous earth or? kitty no, Portland no, no, cement. Oh, Portland I'm sorry, Portland cement. cement, okay.
2: And tide detergent, 50-50. Got it. Got it. There's your poultice. That, I, I, I've used that. In fact, I introduced that to ARCO, and they used it to uh, clean up a bunch of their uh, station pads, and they, they were blown away by how wor- well
3: it worked. Great. Yeah. Just realize. Just realized. Just realized um... Should have sold it. <laughs> Just realize realize that the testing that we've done uh, with these abatement chemicals, um, they can go down up to two inches into the concrete, right? Right. Right. And so the abatement people, all they do is they just, they'll wash the top of the concrete with Tide um, or some neutral detergent. Um, and they th- and they call it a day. That's what they're paid to do. Right, they're
1: uh, there to get rid of the particulate asbestos.
3: Uh, it, well, yeah, and they're only which considering is, the they're only considering what they're getting paid for, which is very cheap, by the way. It's very it, it's inexpensive to abate a floor with with solvents. It's very expensive to abate a floor without solvents. That means you have to get into wet grinding and so forth and so on, and the unfortunate part of that is, that despite the fact that we have that on the Reserian Floor Covering Institute, um, the guidelines for that, uh, it is not the norm. The norm is to use solvents. Uh, I, I've I've seen um, I've gotten in debates uh, with architects and general contractors and so forth and so on, and. You know uh, the, the the people the the contractors that actually do it the way that they're supposed to do it the way that we recommend is no solvents at all. They're up to three to five times the cost of yep. doing it the solvent way. So think, where where do you think people are going to go?
1: Right, and the key is though if you're an industrial hygienist or other person specifying that type of work, you've got to let your building owner know the pros and cons of the different methods. Yeah, it's going to be cheaper, but you could potentially have these issues. Rowan, let's go back. Let's go over to you for a moment. Let's get your kind of overview of the first shows and um, what you
4: think some of the key points were. Well, believe it or not, it's been about three years. I think my first show was in April of 2020. So that's been a while. That was the first show. And that first show, we, we talked mostly about the inspection industry, um, doing inspections, the use of forensics with inspections and failure analysis and stuff like that. Um, much of that is pretty much stayed the same. Um, you know, we still have an industry and this is unfortunate. We have an industry of very, very bright people, but There's also a lot of people that are just set in their ways, and and they have learned things 20 or 25 or 30 years ago, and what they learned then is what they consider to be state-of-the-art today. And I was actually, as Bob and William were going back and forth and back and forth, and I listened to them, and I frequently cringe. (laughs) And the reason why I cringe is a a good rule of thumb. So, for every hour that I spend listening to Bob or listening to William, I essentially end up generating three to four hours of research on my part after the fact, just (laughs) trying to figure out what the hell they're talking about and exactly how does that relate to me and floors. And there's been one. Huge benefit um, from my association with, with these gentlemen and others over the past couple of years, especially. We have brought back the um, we've brought back a, a focus on the surface of concrete again. For a long time, we, the flooring industry, were just t- treating a slab as a slab. It's one big thing.
2: Right.
4: that's concrete. And the reason why this is so special to me and personal to me is that we're going back to the surface and we're treating that upper three quarters of an inch to an inch of a concrete slab. We're treating that as a separate thing within the slab itself. And I refer to it as a transition zone. And believe it or not, I was first introduced to this concept some 25 years ago with Bob and with Ralph Godfrey. And then we kind of, like I say, we got away from that. And I'm happy to say in the past couple of years, we're coming back and we're giving that transition zone, that upper inch of the slab, we're giving it its due credit for the damage that that area can do to an installation. It is a completely different subspecies of the slab itself. It's, it's more porous. It's more alkaline. It can hold more stuff. And that's, let's face it. If you're going to have a failure, you're going to have it on the surface. You're pretty, you're not going to have a flooring failure three inches below the surface. If you do, it's not a flooring failure. It's a concrete failure. Right. Um, You know, so life is good, and I just keep learning.
1: Well, Rowan, thank you. That really helps sum up the first half here. What I'd like to do is go to halftime, and then when we come back, I want to talk a lot more specifically about moisture-related issues in concrete, Um, although I think everything we talked about so far was really important, and I appreciate you guys spending a minute on that with me. All right, let's, let's go to our halftime. We'll be back with Robert Higgins, William Thornton, and Rowan Vieira, our marquee sponsor. Is first on site your trusted full service disaster recovery and property restoration company at firstonsite.com. Our association sponsors are ACGIH, Advancing Careers of Professionals in Environmental Health industrial hygiene and safety, interested in defining their science. ACGIH.org, AIHA, healthy workplaces, a healthier world, AIHA.org. The IICRC, a non-profit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry, IICRC.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories, Free shipping, great pricing, same-day results with no-rush fee, AEMLinc.com. Particles Plus, feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us, ParticlesPlus.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations, TSI.com. Sunbelt Rentals availability, reliability, and ease for all your IAQ and restoration needs at sunbeltrentals.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers, healthyindoors.com. All right, we got back for the second half here. I want to start with a, a question that was on the AIHA's catalyst where they, you know, the industrial hygiene professionals, safety professionals discuss issues. And and the the question was um, about mats on concrete floors. And they were talking about having a mat on concrete floors and how there was mold appeared to be underneath that. And how could that occur? And a lot of the replies were talking about how moisture wicks up through the concrete and, that's probably how the moisture problem occurred. From talking with you guys, my impression was it's more likely, and, and I've seen this in numerous cases, that the moisture was the result of a dew point issue, um, that the mats were covering up the floor, the, the, the concrete, that the the surface of the concrete was cooler and that the potential for moisture to migrate to that cooler surface uh, where it was at dew point was the most likely cause. So it goes back to what Roland was just talking about, things that people thought 25 or 30 years ago, they're still pushing out today. And I wonder, am I wrong on this, guys? Or is it likely, you know, how often do you see moisture problems where moisture is wicking up through concrete concrete as opposed to um, condensing on concrete? Let's
4: start with you, Bob. Hold on just a second. Excuse me, Bob. I just want to say something about this mold thing. Uh, this actually goes back to something that uh, actually I had talked about on my very first um, my very first appearance on your show um, indirectly. so people say we 've got a mold problem, so've we 've got a moisture problem. Well, mold takes more than just moisture, okay mold also needs a food source, and mold needs a hospitable environment. If you have moisture and no food source, you're not going to have mold. There's nothing for it to eat. How can it survive? Or if you have a food source and no moisture, likewise. But so many people have gotten so used to, I want to say lazy, and maybe I will, uh, that says it's a moisture problem, that's it. Well, no, it's not a moisture problem. Nothing is ever that black and white. It's always a little more complicated than that. Just because you have moisture does not mean you're going to have mold. I'm sorry, Bob. Go ahead. That's a good point. You're, a, you're good. absolutely correct.
2: It, it me of mold,
3: mold mold requires uh, three elements. Um it requires humidity, it requires a food source, and then it also requires a temperature that 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 is hospitable for it to propagate.
2: Yes. I, that reminds me, when Roland was talking about the, um, the mold issue, I went out and inspected this floor, and this was some 20 years ago, and there, was a, there were some areas where they had this, these pink and blue spots in the vinyl floor. What turned out, as we scraped it back and looked, looked at the uh, concrete, somebody had dropped a sandwich, and they were trying to clean it up. The food source was from the, from the residue from the sandwich. So they just put the floor down, and uh, bingo. Now, one of the things that will happen, especially with older concrete, and uh, older concrete gets dangerous because <clears throat> there's this, as it goes through, as it's, uh, as it's exposed to ambient conditions, much less so if you keep a floor on it, but if it's exposed to ambient conditions, what will happen is you get a, a migration of salts towards the surface because it, it, it's just like when you see efflorescence. Now, a lot of this efflorescence, you don't have to see it, but it is there. And that causes a different type of dew point. Everybody is familiar with atmospheric dew point, but we have what's called ionic dew point. Now, what ionic dew point is, is if, for example, if you take just plain table salt, and you sprinkle it on a counter. Well, if the relative humidity stays below 80%, it stays dry. But if it, drop, if it goes above 80%, the whole counter will get damp. That is an ionic yeah. dew point.
3: You know what's interesting. um, What's interesting, just this to go back in history. What's interesting, Bob, uh, and for everybody else, there's an old way that we used to do moisture testing, long before calcium chloride, before F twenty one seventy, the probe testing. The old way that we used to do it, um, and I've actually done that. Sorry, my bad. We took a teaspoon of table salt, uh, table salt uh, and we piled that onto the floor, and then we took a we took a glass, and sometimes we'd use like a mason jar or something like that. But you know, we'd set that on top of the table salt, and then we'd take plumber's putty, and we'd wrap we we would wrap the the, the uh, bottom of the uh, of the bottle. Uh, sometimes a mason jar sometime whatever we had, but at, at the time. But way back a long time ago, mason jars were pretty easy to get. Uh and then we'd wrap that with plumber's putty because we'd we'd rob that from the plumber guys because we got it for free, right? So that was free. So we'd get plumber's putty. We'd wrap that around there to seal it off and we'd come back in the next day and if it was clumpy, uh we couldn't install the floor. If it was not clumpy, we could install the floor. And Robert, now, you're, you're not going to, you're not going to hear that. You're not going to hear that joke from a lot of people uh, because most of the people that actually did that are not around anymore.
2: <laughs>
3: Bob,
1: do you want to comment on that?
3: No, I think uh, that's, that's hilarious because um,
2: in a, in an odd way, that's actually uh, giving you some valuable information but you can't quantify it. You've qualified it, but you can't quantify it. So what, right. what's the
1: bottom line? If I've got a slab sitting in a pool of water, is that water going to wick up and cause my cause me to have a moisture problem? I mean, it doesn't have to be a pool of water. Just, you know, any time a slab's sitting on the ground, the ground's typically got moisture in it. Is that what I should be looking for? Is someone inspecting that or or should I be looking for something different or should I be looking for a
2: series of things? A series of things, but uh, the the impetus for water to move, it it moves from warm to cool. So what's never made a lot of sense is when the underside of the concrete is consistently cooler than the surface, it doesn't make any sense that moisture would migrate up that way. It doesn't have to migrate. Moisture is a really good transport mechanism. It will transport any kind of contaminants because it wants to go from a higher concentration to lower concentration, and that's what it does. So if you took, for example, a jar, and put dye in it, the, the dye will diffuse. Or else if you take two containers, and I did this in science class, and it was uh, just separated by, a, by a, a closed valve where we took some uh, salty water in the one, and then the other, the other water was clear, we would open the valve, and what would happen, is start going to equalization. After about a week, yep. the, uh, the salt content was almost exactly the same, and the water didn't move. Yep. Yep. It doesn't have to move. And that is a mistake yep. and a false precept that has infected this industry right from the get-go, so they put these vapor barriers underneath. You don't need those things. They don't do anything. Now, if you crack through the concrete, yeah, they'll help, but they don't do anything. Other than that, they don't nothing. If you do what to the concrete, they'll help. It, it, you, the concrete, the, if it cracks, they'll help. Uh, okay. Vapor barrier will help if the concrete cracks, but that's uh, maybe. That depends on if it gets if it gets pulled apart by the concrete cracking. Because so, the, if
1: there are cracks, you could have what capillary uh, yes. suction. Okay, and then you could actually see moisture migrating in the liquid form.
2: Yeah, and, but that would be capillarity. No, no, it, it,
3: it, wouldn't be a, it, it wouldn't be in a liquid. What, what we're dealing with mostly is, is vapor. vapor. Um, it, it's very difficult, and Bob would agree that it's very difficult for liquid water to move through concrete vertically. Well, so moving through concrete. That's uh, very difficult. Is like it's, it's, it's very hard with, for that to do. So it's, it's, it would be more of a vapor.
4: But, but I the, think what Joe was talking about is, uh, but, was capillarity through an open crack. I think that's what yes. Joe was talking yes. about.
3: Well, it's, well, it's capillarity. Uh, well, then you have cracks and joints and and uh, other things. But, but the, water will move through concrete as a vapor uh, considerably easier. But the, the the problem is, is what happens at the surface of the concrete. And I think this is the crux of what we're talking about today, is the top of the concrete. What are we dealing with that? Yeah, but let me correct something. I'd like if to you, finish my comment first, and okay. then you come back, if you don't mind. <laughs> okay. So what happens is is the vapor trans you know draper vapor moves up, uh, which it will because of the differential as as Bob explained uh, very well. But when it hits when it hits the bond line, and as Roland has been has been a, a, a alluding to also. What we're dealing with on the floor covering industry is the bond line, the the, the connection between the top of the concrete to the the adhesive, to the floor patch, to the uh, flooring installed on top of it. What happens often uh, when you have uh, humidity like this, you'd have vapor drive coming up into uh, into the top of the slab. Once you encapsulate that floor with the floor covering, uh, you, you, have that, uh, you have that equalization law that it will happen because you have, you know, a vapor retarder below the slab. You, now you have an encapsulatory material on top of the slab. At the end of the day, that concrete will equalize. It will. It has to. It has no choice. Um, there's nothing you can do to make it different. It will equalize. Uh, what happens is that water will get up to the top of the slab. Uh, if you've got a sealer on top of the concrete, uh, that's a problem child. Uh, you've got a non-porous, you, basically a, a liquid non-porous surface, but th- that vapor will, will, will um, it, it, it is still permeable. Even though we call it non-porous, that's kind of a misnomer. And, and Bob and Roland, you would agree with me that calling, calling the top of concrete non-porous is not the correct way to call it. Um that vapor will hit the back of the bond line it 'll hit that bond line that joint between floor patch and adhesive and floor covering on top of it, and it will condense that 's not dew point let 's make no mistake about the definition of dew point versus condensation there and Bob and you and I had that conversation um that 's condensation, so in condensation by definition of condensation that Vapor water that is in vapor form will hit that bond line. It will condense if the conditions uh, exist for it to do so, and it will turn into liquid water. That is condensation. That is not that is not dew point. So we need to be careful about what we're seeing. You know, what's the difference between condensation and dew point? When that condensation, uh, when that vapor water that reaches the bond line. Condenses. That's a really big problem.
2: Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, I do okay. want to. I want to make a clarification, um, if you don't mind. Uh, with water vapor, you can't get water vapor movement through free You can get it only at the surface. Uh, that really has to be made very, very clear. Because water is in its, its densest form as a liquid and is incompressible. You cannot move water through m- water,
3: no matter exactly. what form you in. You cannot compress water, you can only displace correct, it.
2: Correct. So everything comes off that area into the what I call the gradient. Now, what Wayne was talking about, when that comes up like that, what that tends to do, because that's the most contaminated portion of the concrete, is you get what's called a cascading effect. It starts to pick up the alkaline salts and the other materials. It will actually reduce the relative humidity as it gets more aggressive. Now, uh, when you hit a certain percentage of of, um, of contamination, it can actually start to dissolve your floor. It starts damaging the floor, and there's other aspects of the concrete and I won't get into it today because it's a little more convoluted, and more uh, uh, complex. But the, what we're what you're not being told. By the concrete industry, is virtually all the cement that's being ground. They use what are called grinding aids. These grinding aids migrate. They're amine based, or glycol based, or all these nasty solvents that are in there. They migrate up and they're causing damage to the floors, and the floors and their materials are being blamed for this.
3: You know, Bob, um, can I ask a question? Sure. Uh, one, one of the biggest things that I'm dealing with right now uh, on the lead, especially lead version four, Okay. Yes. Um, And I'm certain, I'm certain, uh, Roland, you've heard about it. Uh, I'm certain everybody's heard about it. Clayton, I'm, if he's here, I I think he's here. Uh, Clayton certainly heard about it too. So what do we do with this fly ash issue? Uh, With lead version four, with the, the, the green movement on concrete fly ash, we're dealing with that. It's, there's been changes over the past 20 years. Bob, can you, (laughs) <laughs> i mean what do we do with that
2: um the, the fly ash was a good idea until the until the cement got more alkaline the fly ash is like any other pozzolan what it is it's a secondary cement and it it's completely and totally dependent on the hydration of the initial cement if the initial cement does not hydrate it, it, what i should call clinker so when the clinker doesn't form cement there's nothing for the fly ash to react with. So your top layer gets even worse if you have something like fly ash in it. So these materials that look great in the laboratory, when you have it out in the field, especially in elevated temperatures, this is part, this is part of the cascading effect I was telling you about. As the temperature increases, one of the byproducts of cement hydration is called Portlanditers, calcium hydroxide. That becomes insoluble as the temperature rises. And as the alkalinity increases, it becomes completely insoluble and prevents contact for this clinker to even form cement. So this is happening. And I was under the assumption as so many concrete uh, consultants were that, that when you cure concrete, you put water on, you put a membrane on it, it gets to 90, 100% relative humidity and stays there. It does not within two to three weeks the relative humidity in the top surface of the concrete drops well below eighty percent. The cement stops forming, and it can actually drop uh, to 60 percent relative humidity. That is permanently damaged. That is what you're dealing with. They are not dealing with this because they keep they keep referring to this as a homogeneous substance. It is not. Uh, one of the uh, best uh, examples of this, Doctor Zollinger out of Texas, did a study on this and showed. Yes. A a seven-day water cure and an air-cured concrete. What he did is he sliced off the top one inch of the concrete. So even though this concrete was 4,000 PSI across the board and showed no variation, with with the concrete that was air-cured, the the top one inch of the concrete was a full 1,200 PSI weaker than the remainder of the concrete. And even the seven-day water cure was 800 PSI weaker than the remainder of the concrete. That means the cement is not forming. I mean, the proof is right there, and study after study that I've seen globally agrees with this. So that's, that's how. What we're what,
1: what uh, date are we looking at when this fly ash thing started to become, you know, pretty common?
2: Well, fly ash has been around a long time, and that's um, and and some, and in the earlier days, which were probably in the fifties and sixties, they started noticing they were having issues with it, so they started an, analyzing the fly ash. They found that some fly ash was alkaline and the other fly ash wasn't. So they told you stop using the alkaline fly ash and use the non-alkaline type. Well,
3: Bob, Bob, can you explain? I mean, I already know the answer, but this, this is you know mostly you answering things. Um, can you can you explain what fly ash is, where it comes from, and, well, and why it's used?
2: Yeah, fly ash is basically a waste byproduct from coal production. It's it doesn't come from any other sources caused by coal in coal production and they had all this waste product and they found out that it could be used as a secondary cement so start started to be used now we're starting to have a fly ash shortage because the, the coal industry is dying off so mm-hmm. uh, there's some areas now they can't get fly ash anymore
3: yeah and interestingly enough bob people are asking for more fly ash i know
2: <laughs> and now they can't get it there's Whoa. some people can't get it
1: Guys, let's go to the roundup. I want to bring in Andrew Reinhart here. I see he's still on and uh, let's, let's get our final thoughts. Go ahead, John. All right, we're going to the roundup. We, uh, I wanted to put up Madison IAQ and the thermostore group because I owe them a little something. And, uh, we're we're looking for a new roundup sponsor here. Uh, but anyway, I, I'm kind of curious, guys. You know, this is just sometimes goes right over my head here with the uh, you know, Andrew, can you come in here and help us a little bit? Kind of give me some some solid stuff I can give the inspection crew out there, you know. Um what are your thoughts on this whole topic?
5: Well, just sort of translating some of the things that have been said. Here as best I can. Uh, is my microphone loud enough? Can you hear me? Yes, you yes. sound great.
3: We can hear you just fine. Hey, good to see By you. By the way,
5: hey, Andrews,
3: Andrew's
5: <laughs> big, big love, Andrew. So, yeah, so there's some really good points raised about the top uh, one inch of the concrete and how the it's so important to test the top inch of the concrete. It's the bond layer of the concrete, and it's also where you have alkalinity issues, mostly. So how moisture transports within concrete was discussed. And I think it's a really important point. And I think anyone in IAQ or in restoration will understand this quite well when they look at it from the moisture point of view. So um, Bob was making the point that, and, and William, that moisture is not compressible and therefore moisture doesn't move within concrete. And I think that's true when it's new concrete. I think when concrete gets very old and all the, all the, pore spaces are 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 empty with water then moisture can migrate with, within that so when concrete is placed originally when there's too much water for hydration because the concrete is non-compressible it leaves little air gaps when as the water dries out and those air gaps can fill up again if there is um uh some sort of hydrostatic pressure or rain even or other other things but it's very rare and a lot of things are are a lot of issues that we see are blamed on that. And that it's not the case. And as William said, um, when moisture can trans- transport within uh concrete as vapor when those air spaces are empty. So vapor then can come up from um the a- deeper within the concrete if there's more moisture deep down, it can transport to the surface as vapor. And what's important to know is when it's transporting to the surface of vapor it's the same principle as if it was distilled water. When you're distilling water, you use some sort of thermal energy to distill the water. Well, you know, condensation or evaporation is very similar, except for it's using, um, you know, thermal energy rather than some sort of added energy, like a Bunsen burner or something. So it's the same principle with distilling water is that it's pure water. That's the point. So when moisture moves within concrete as vapor, it moves as pure water and it's often blamed for bringing salts up from the concrete and that's just not true what happens if concrete is alkali the alkalinity will remain in the top layer of the concrete um and therefore if co- if condensation happens or if dew point if you know from the conversation dew point means the moisture is coming from the atmosphere into the concrete and condensation means its vapor coming from within the concrete to the surface if you have alkalinity then you come to what Bob Higgins was talking about, which is this he called it ionic dew point. An ionic dew point means that it's condensing at a lower uh, temp at a higher temperature than it would normally do it, it, under normal condensation because of the alkalinity. So Actually, a lot of the
2: more lower temperature. Lower temperature. No nah.
5: yeah. Yeah, lower temperature. Okay, it can't... okay. My uh, brain's not sweet.
2: Yeah, because um, yeah, because it it can condensate at at a much lower
5: uh Relative humidity—that's the most important part. Yeah, lower relative humidity. Relative higher humidity, not temperature. Okay. Yeah, higher. Oh. It will. Con- I was. I, yeah, I appreciate the addition, but I, I was—I sure. <laughs> was right the first time. It's a, it can it <laughs> condenses at a higher temperature and a lower relative humidity, yes, than saturation. Correct. So that's what they call ionic dew point. What you just called ionic dew point. So yes. that what it's what most people in the flooring industry would call alkalinity issues. They would see that, and so that means there's alkalinity in the top of the concrete. And as the concrete is drying out, um, the, you know, it dries out by vapor releasing from the surface of the concrete. That that creates um, a, a cooling effect um, because of the vapor emission, which is uh, the name is just gone from the top. Evaporative cooling effect. Evaporative cooling. Thank you. Yeah. So, so that evaporative really cooling from... makes the top layer of the concrete slightly cooler. Exactly. The rest and it of the condenses room. more readily, yes. And it condenses more readily, and it will do so even more if there's alkalinity there. And that fo- therefore, you get this moisture at the surface, which then can transport those salts into the adhesive and other things to create. And,
2: and it's persistent, Andrew. Thank you for bringing that up, because it's persistent. <laughs> you can't get rid of it unless you've removed that layer of concrete because yeah, yeah so the, so the top
5: layer about. that you you have is where you get most of the issues and yeah. therefore we do test deep within the concrete because we want to get a 2 point to see where the moisture is moving is it moving from the bottom up or the top down and and that's important but what's happened in the industry is the focus has gone onto the in situ testing and and by by sort of teaching people that the that what's happening within the concrete is more important And what's happening at the surface, uh, people have got a little bit confused and um, misled. So as Roland pointed out, this discussion that has been ongoing through these meetings have very much uh, brought back into focus the need for testing the moisture at the surface and where the IAQ and the water damage industry comes into it is they understand moisture as transitory much better than the flooring industry. When the flooring industry measures the moisture, they assume that's the problem. But where the where somebody in the water damage or IAQ industry will come in and say, OK, there's moisture there causing a problem. Let's get rid of it. And that can be done by air movement or dehumidification or heat in, in some cases, depending on which is necessary. So the dew point can be, you know, whether you're seeing um, an alkalinity issue or a dew point issue, Will depend very much on certain variables that can be measured. How they're treated with a dew point issue, you can treat it by dehumidification. But the dew point issue itself creates moisture at the surface, which is causes a problem for the adhesive. And actually, you can using fans, you can just remove that um, moisture at the surface and not worry about the dew point issue because by the time the adhesive has cured that uh dew point issue won't have caused a problem. Well, so, and it seems like a lot of these
1: problems occur when you put a surface over top of that especially in a, an impermeable surface or, or you know um, you're talking about putting a fan across if I've got flooring on top will that still help?
5: No, um what what I'm what I'm saying is that the problems occur, a lot of the problems w- we see occur because of moisture at the bond line. You're trying to adhese, adhese, you're trying to stick a floor onto moisture effectively. Or sometimes if there's alkalinity, you're trying to stick it to alkali moisture, which creates an even f- a further problem. But if you can eliminate the moisture to let the adhesive do its job, which is to form the bond then once the adhesive has become fully cured, those problems reduce dramatically, if not completely disappear. So that's why using fans work, even though they don't really adjust the dew point, if you've got a dew point issue, blowing air over it is not going to, you know, as we know, either increase the heat or reduce the humidity. will both solve the dew point issue, but that dew point issue has led to moisture being present in the bond line and air movement will remove that moisture from the bond line. So that's why it's often used effectively in the, in the phase of installing flooring.
1: Cliff, uh, let me give you a shot to jump in here. Do you have any uh, add-ons, any, any follow-ups?
0: I did have a text. Hang on, let me grab the text question I had. Uh, it was actually for Bob. Um, ask Bob if a vapor barrier is loose, if a vapor barrier is useless, then how about a capillary break uh, underneath the slab with pea gravel or such, when the concrete is poured over soil in a known area of high water levels. So I guess
2: I've always agreed with that, and uh, and that's what that's what uh, was one of my wake up calls is when ACI moved to putting the vapor barrier directly below the concrete rather than putting the uh, capillary break. <clears throat> I knew right then that uh, a lot of the knowledge that we've been given is knowledge by rote rather than knowledge by actual experience and understanding the dynamics of how water moves. Uh, cause you don't need to put a vapor barrier underneath a concrete slab. Uh, one of the basis of that was the 1965 study done by Brewer, uh, but, uh, who was working, uh, and was sponsored by Portland cement association. And that was, it was talked about uh, moisture movement from slabs on ground. Well, everyone assumed that that study, uh, verified the need that we need to put a, a vapor barrier underneath the concrete slab and that moisture is moving through the concrete. That is not what the study concluded. The study concluded what was causing the damage to the floors is the moisture evaporating off the surface of the concrete. We were given an opposite conclusion and we were misled. We've been misled since, since 1960s on the necessity for things that we don't need, and we keep getting fed these things that we don't need. Well, you need to put a, a moisture mitigation down. The only moisture mitigation you normally need is like what Andrew said—a fan. It almost all the problems we've seen, and I've, uh, and I've gone out with on on project after project with these installers when they have monitored the site conditions and they've removed the surface water. Uh, one one. Uh, Installer here in Florida has six offices. They were getting monthly claims. They're down to less than one claim a year. That's attainable by every single installer simply by monitoring the site conditions at time of installation. Then, then when real problems come in, that's when people like Roland come in. Then you go out and you start sorting out what what the what the extraneous damages were.
1: Okay. Hey, Cliff, do you have any any other questions? I want to give Pete a final thought. before No, no, no. Start. Uh, but, just, but just, I guess, for our panelists
0: and also some listeners that may know, we have something called uh, Afterthoughts. And actually, uh, if you look at the chat, we have the, you know, how to, how to get into it. And this is where the conversation can continue after the show. Uh, and uh, we invite you, both panelists and audience, to kind of continue the conversation there.
1: All right, let's bring in the uh, Restoration Industries Global Watchdog for some final thoughts. Guys, this has just been – it went so fast, I can't believe it.
6: <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, Joe, I told Danny in the chat privately, I initially had suggested this show and next week be at least an hour and a half. Looks like we're running into OT anyway. Once Andrew called in from Ireland to like the World Cup, we're, we're <laughs> in overtime, right? So, hello. <laughs> yeah. So – so here's the oh deal. Oh, my thing. God, Brazil. Brazil lost. Just be quiet now, will you? <laughs> Now, Bob, Bob, uh, that question that Cliff asked you came from me. Okay. Right? Yes. And the reason I asked that is that you, if we were playing bingo, when you said I agree with that, you'd hit bingo. You hit the Joe Stebrick bingo because that what Joe Stebrick started talking about in the mid-'90s is that you had to have these capillary breaks, particularly in areas where the concrete was over soil and high where high water levels, that even if it was a so-called vapor barrier, it was not, it, it wasn't, it, it still was permeable. So you you, you and Joe are on the same page in that. So good, good at you there, Mr. Mister Higgins. Oh, cool. Now, what? Excellent. I got, yeah, exactly. Now, I got a couple other Joe-isms here. When you guys were talking about this, so Joe used to ask a question, and Cliff will remember this from the days in the 90s. He said, how high will wood absorb moisture? This was kind of like a silly little deal. He says, well, as high as the tallest tree is in the world, right? <laughs> but that, that actually led him into the concrete discussion because Joe's assertion of all building materials, concrete is far and away the most, uh, uh, you know, it sucks. It is the most, Capillary action, and he made this statement. He said, "If you could build a concrete pole that would reach from uh, the Earth to the, moon, to the Moon, and as long as you kept a moisture source that you guys talked about, you got on the moisture source. He said it would, would suck. It, it would
3: get there. We would have it water would on there. the
6: Moon. It, it would get there. It would suck and suck and suck until the water went all the way up. So this is the reason why these issues about." concrete that we've been pounding home with this audience we're going to continue next week at some of the most important issues involving installations and buildings for flooring moisture related issues and buildings for the IUQA guys and everything that's involved the restoration guys which is and cliffs wheelhouse that guys need to understand moisture and concrete and quite frankly there's no one there's no company who knows more about this in my opinion from a detection standpoint, than the Reinhardt family, and I'm saying that because I know it and I believe it from my heart. And this is agree. no promotion. And I'm not getting paid a dime from those guys. We I agree. Just, we agree. I just like them. I just like right. them. Now, I have my last question. Since this is a concrete show and we got concrete Bob in there, I'd <laughs> like to cl- I'd like to close with this Bob. The best story I ever heard from Bob, the most hilarious story, and it's the story that I told Steve Brook when I said, I, 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 you, you should be a cameo speaker at summer camp, and that may or may not come true at the 25th anniversary, but, of course, you're going to see Steve Brooke at the end of the month of winter break, right? Yeah. And he'll love the fact that you can play music because, you know, music is a big part of summer <laughs> camp also. We have a lot of fun. So that story that you told at, at the symposium in Dublin, where were the roots of the moisture, my You talked about the, the London Metro pulled you in as a consultant on the concrete because they couldn't figure out what the problem was with the concrete in the London Underground. And I'm thinking, how must it have been before they finally got around to have to ask the Yank to come out there and solve the concrete <laughs> problem. I mean, Statebrook as a Canadian was laughing this so hard. I, when you told that story, I was all I could do to hold it. I mean, Andrew, if we weren't actually recording that, I would have just busted one right there in Dublin. So, Bob, tell us what you can tell them. doesn't violate any confidentiality because, I mean, I just can picture you down here a mile down in the London Underground with a bunch of these freaking engineers and they're asking a surfer from California to tell them what the
2: problem is. Come on, Bob. That's a great story. you got to close the show with that. Well, well, basically they were, they were, they showed me, uh, 23 different test areas where they were, where they were attempting to waterproof the, the inside of the tunnel. And I was looking at, well, uh, we can fix this. She said, yeah, sure you can. So anyway, I went ahead and treated an area and said, well, it's really cold. So it's going to take a while to react. So we need to leave. So we went to lunch and we come back and the engineer from, uh, from, uh, from British Rail, he had his pen in his mouth. He looks up, and the pen drops out of his mouth. He goes, bloody hell, it's dry. <laughs> I said, yeah. He said, no, it's dry. I said, well, yeah, well, it's not completely dry. There's some areas in here, but, you know, because we need to, to do certain things to this. So we ended up, they didn't believe, they couldn't believe what they saw. So we ended up doing four more areas and the same result. So we ended up waterproofing 60 miles of underground and tunnel." And they had to bring us all the way out from San Diego to do this. So it it was great. I mean, uh, I love it when people tell me, well, you can't do this. Well, you can't waterproof this. There's nothing you can't do if you deal with it in a proper fashion. There really isn't. But you have to have the basic information. If, if, If I had the traditional information that they all had, yeah, you couldn't do it. That's the problem. The flooring industry is dealing with the wrong set of precepts. We need to reset those precepts and get it back to accuracies. Like when when uh, Pete and uh, William were talking about Andrew and uh, Tremex, I beat up Tremex really badly for a while, and Andrew will tell you, because I want to make sure that they were legitimate. Then I looked at a study that was done in Finland where um, VTT, this really well-regarded uh, uh, internationally renowned uh, testing firm was was using gravimetric as the baseline. Well, gravimetric to me was my holy grail. That is the most accurate way you can possibly measure moisture in anything. That's what they use in, in feeds and uh, food stuffs and cosmetics and medicine and everything else. They use gravimetric. Well, they they analyzed the uh, uh, using gravimetric in that lab and what uh, six or seven. Different methods were, were approved. But when they went in the field, none of them worked except for Trimex. That's when I knew they worked. That's when I knew. I said, okay, now I'm on board, Andrew. You just proved to me this absolutely works because you're, 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 you're lined right up with gravimetric and all the other ones, even the calcium carbide, they were spreading out all over the place. There was no correlation at all. Most, if there was some overlap, it, it,
3: Exactly. Yeah, it, it, exactly, Bob.
2: Hey uh, Joe, I,
6: I got one last thing I want to throw out there. Hey, uh, let's wrap, wrap it up with this. Yeah, well, I'm wrapping it up. I'm gonna I'm gonna put a fly in the ointment. <laughs> one of the key one of the key things that you had in the No, show
3: Pete, is, you're yeah. not gonna put a fly in the ointment. Uh, yeah, oh yeah, oh yes I am. So out of character. Yeah. You've never done that before.
6: Yeah, well, I, I yeah, okay. Here I'm stirring it now. So Joe, in the show notes, one of the things we wanted to discuss, but we did not have time, is we want to talk about the concrete failure at Surfside, those buildings collapsed in Miami. And right. Bob knows about this. And some other people whose names I mentioned, which will go unnamed now, know about this in other countries outside of the United States borders. Believe it at that. You guys can read the lines. My point is, that's a very important discussion if you're going to have a concrete discussion. Now, I'm not suggesting we're going to have a whole new show and I'm not suggesting we're going to get into it now. But possibly depending on what's going to happen next week. Maybe we make next week an hour and a half show instead of an hour. We're going to have Mickey Lee. We're going to have Dr. Moon and we're going to have Bob Blottinger and Andrew's planning on calling in for the roundup too. Maybe what happens is we have an extended roundup that can go into the afterthoughts and we have Bob call in and we maybe address that issue as part of next week's show. So we kind of do it in this two part that's my pete, suggestion uh, for
3: pete, uh, pete get get rolling in there too okay rolling yeah Roland, if you Roland. got
6: something to add then i'm more yeah. than happy uh but whoever can address the topic i think we need to cover it as part of these two panels is my point that i'm trying to make
3: so radio joe rolling Roland, Roland might I be able gotta, to give you a perspective that 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 other people haven't thought about so you no, know, uh, I, I i, I get know, rolling well, into that one
6: yeah rolling rolling you're you're one big well i'll just say it you're one big just s disturber also and that's that's <laughs> about you. Uh, yeah, anyway so uh so anyway uh joe cliff your blog is going to be unbelievable i suspect the blog is just going to be off the charts. there's so much information packed in there I think going to the afterthoughts is really important on this topic. There's a lot lot of activity. You can't always address everything in the mm-hmm. chat, log because one question leads to another. The next get connected to this. Hey, guys, uh, thank you very much to the mob. I well, thank you. This is great. Appreciate you calling in. Thank and you. Andrew, Pete. Thank you, You know, you, Joe. and uh, anyway, uh, Radio Joe. Right. Off. Thank, you, Cliff. Back Cliff.
1: To you, thank you, Joe. Thank you all. This is Radio Joe saying thanks. To this week's guests, Bob Higgins, William Thornton, Roland Vieira, my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick, John, you got to have faith at the controls, the restoration industry, global watchdog, Pete Consigli. We'll be back next week with part two of our our Moisture Mob grand finale.
0: For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reel, saying thanks for listening.